Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Excellent. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. We have been in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be continuing for quite a while. We will take a break over Advent, but today we also get to come, uh, as we come to the close of the service, we'll come to this table. And so this is just a sense that begin to prepare your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, we come to this thing that some people call Eucharist, some people call Mass, some people call the the Lord's Table. It's this remembrance, it's this celebration, it's it's many of these different things. And yet, one of the beautiful elements is is this this real significant presence of Jesus as you do that, transforming you, transforming me. And so we'll, we'll come into that as we come towards the end. My family and I did a thing. Um, we went and, and bought this small creature. Uh, we tried this a while ago, you may remember, it didn't go so well. Uh, it was a foster puppy that we said uh, no to fostering, which is sometimes a good no. But, but we didn't say no to having a dog at all, and so we went and we claimed Holly this time with an oath. We will never let you go. We will, you, you are part of us, you are part of our family, like you'll be in the Christmas photos, all of those different things. Uh, and then we've had the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I will say my oath has been tested. Uh, and it's just as well that today we, we get to talk uh, about oaths because were it not for the oath I made, uh, she might be out the door already. She is delightful, but she is a menace. Uh, she, uh, she has two favorite places to, to, to poop. One is the, the living room rug um, and one is the deck. And I'm actually not keen on either of them as choices, to be honest, and yet so far, uh, so far we've not got where we're hoping to get. Um, but today we'll talk about oaths and whether you should swear them or not. And yet I did to Holly, and so she gets to belong. The Sermon on the Mount is this, this incredible bulk of Jesus' teaching, the largest public teaching that he does in anywhere in scripture. It's three chapters as you would read it in the modern text. It takes about 12 minutes and it's incredible the amount of subjects that Jesus manages to cover in just 12 minutes of reading. It's not going to be 12 minutes today. It's gonna take me longer than that just to unpack a small part of what he says. It, It speaks perhaps to the distance between our culture and his culture that there's just so many little details that we perhaps needs to, need to draw out. But, but in whole, the sermon is really an invitation. Jesus invites us to experience a transformed heart. If your way of following Jesus is to begin with, I'm going to do lots of things, I'm going to fix myself, it will not get you where you want to get to. There's just too many flaws in our human nature. Now, now transformation does follow, does follow beautifully. I would say Jesus invites us to experience a transformed heart followed by transformed actions, but always followed. 
never in front, never the other way around. Jesus, we come to him and he beautifully transforms us in this, this gravitational sense as he pulls us in towards him and we experience his grace, we are transformed into his image. And so as we continue through this teaching, a, a great question to ask regularly and often is this, what untransformed part of me are you revealing? What untransformed part of me are you revealing as Jesus teaching, teaching nudges up against your sense of how you live? As, as, he, as he touches those places in your heart that you may not want to, to let go of, keep asking, Jesus, what untransformed part of me are you speaking to this week? Last week we talked about marriage and also about divorce, I, I kind of led off with this idea of flourishing marriage is a wonderful witness to a watching world and yet many of you have been in those scenarios where you'd say no, it, it got really broken, it got really messy, I'm still trying to process why it happened and perhaps passages that we might find like passages in the Sermon on the Mount have been used by Christians to, to kind of beat you over the head with you know, this is what the scripture says. Uh, and yet, it's complicated. David Instone Brewer says this, you have to judge each case on its own merit because there's so many different elements of scripture that say, well, in this case, it's permissible. In this case, it's not. But it's never supposed to be, it seems with Jesus, a place for shame and feeling like you don't fit, you don't belong. And so we landed on this idea. For those of you that were snowed in last week <laughs> with two inches of snow, For what is past, grace, uh, and for what is now, grace and hope. Seems like with Jesus there's always grace that's never removed from the equation, that's what he does. Tish Harrison Warren says this, grace is a mystery and the joyful scandal of the universe. The joyful scandal of the universe that God is gracious to people like you and I, and yet He brings in hope and brings beautifully marriage back to this uh, this original point, this original foundation of what you entered into. Uh, that it's no longer two but one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no one separate. So for those of you that are saying, and have said over the week, well, what are some things, if we don't wanna end up in that divorce space, what are a few things we can put into practice beyond the big things like maybe going to counseling or something like that? On the podcast, I just threw out four really quick and I'll, I'll offer the same to you guys today. The first one is, in your marriage, practice gratitude. Be conscious of reminding yourself what it is that you loved about the person to begin with, what it was that stood out to you, what it, what it was that made you say, I do to that person. Number two was don't try to change them. The seven year itch that you may have heard of is generally categorized around this idea that, that about seven years is about the time where you recognize that the person you married is the person you married. Uh, that they aren't going to change significantly, the drawers will stay open. The, the gym shorts that I'm coming back for later will be on the floor consistently and often and, and trying to change someone actually doesn't end up in the satisfaction that you think it might. Doesn't mean you can't ask, doesn't mean you can't ask for help, but, but actually if your goal is to change them, it's, it's probably not gonna work. It's why most divorces are year eight of marriage. Encourage them to be who God made them to be. Encourage them to do the things that God has called them to do. Look for opportunities for them to shine 
in the marriage. And then finally, and this is a big one, whether it's together or privately, uh, invite God in daily. Just say, God, I want you to be this third person in this marriage. And, uh, and wherever you are, uh, there's this beautiful idea that, that a, a restored and restored marriage is also a wonderful witness to a watching world. So that was last week and a little bit of this week. And, and then we move on, we continue with the text. And Jesus beautifully, this is what I love about one of the many things that I love about Jesus. Not only does he give his life for us, but he, but he also is this brilliant teacher. He, he is just crazy good as a teacher. He takes this idea of oaths to one person or a union and a yes to one person. And then he moves to this corporate language. He moves from how do you take a vow that you've made to one person to this, to this, this whole world kind of sense. So, so catch this here. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Hopefully you've caught by this point that Jesus in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is going back through the Old Testament Torah. He's going back through the law code that was given to a people about 1500 years before this. And in some ways he's going back and trying to reclaim what it originally was, its original heartbeat. And then sometimes he's saying something that nobody else seems to have said before, but he's always taking it, taking this thing that's valuable and saying, this is how I want you as, as my people to live it out. You, you might say that when we talk about the, the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're talking about Jesus' model police, his model city, his model community. He's saying, this is, this is how people would live if it's up to me. And so you walked through the door and there was a big sign that said living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And so if you came to South and you called it home, that's what you signed up for. You signed up for life as Jesus says that it should be lived. And so all through the Sermon on the Mount, that's, that, that's what he's doing. He's dropping into these places. We've looked at how he talks about murder and he links it to anger. We've looked at how he talks about adultery and he links it to lust. We've looked at how he talks about divorce and now he'll move on to this one. And, and so the question might be, or should be after these few weeks of doing the same thing is, well, where, where's this reference? What, what's he talking about here? What law is Jesus referring to? And actually he's not. This verbatim quote doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament Torah. It's not that, there are lots of quotes similar, but word for word, there's nothing quite like this. We, we can, might, might go to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and read this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Lots of similar kind of phrases, somewhat like that. Some scholars would point back to this part of the 10 commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How many of you who grew up in church would say, I was told as a kid, that meant don't say the name God in a negative way. How many? Yeah, show of hands. That was probably the bulk of it, right? Now that's a good thing to not do as well. Like it's, it's not a bad idea, but, but it's not the principle of the commandment. 
The, the principle of the commandment is, is don't take God's name and attach it to something you say you're going to do and then you don't do. Don't use it casually. Don't just throw it around. This reading of it might help us. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. There's a few of these different passages that seem to be attached to what Jesus is saying. But what we do know is this, in in the first century, when Jesus lived, oath-making was a serious business. Oath-making was a serious business. You just, you didn't say things like this lightly. It was a guarantee. It was a, this means that I'm, I'm in on my promise. I'm going to do what I said. To invoke the name of God and say, no, I'm, I'm bringing him into this equation to a first century person was a big, big deal. This is kind of the thing that Jesus is referencing back to. He's talking about oaths. You might make promises you might make to someone else. He's talking about keeping your word. Perhaps some of you here might say that I, I come from a generation where a handshake had that kind of seriousness. I, I would offer my hand and, and it was a done deal. And perhaps we now don't live in that time. And so right now in this time that Jesus is talking, there's a whole bunch of questions around, well, what do olds mean and how serious are they? So he continues, verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. This would be new information to a first century person. This, this would be Jesus saying things that nobody has said before. Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Jesus lived way before the days of plentiful hair dye, and so if you appear here today with a color of hair that is not your own, this isn't what he's talking about there. It's not that you didn't find a loophole. It's not, he's not confused. He's giving a whole bunch of things that you might swear by that might kind of hold you to some kind of promise. But why is he saying it? What, what is he trying to get out? It turns out that the, the group that he most addresses in a lot of his teaching, the Pharisees, had developed a system that come up with a way where you could still swear an oath, but you didn't have to live up to it. You, you could find like an exit ramp, you could find a loophole that would get you out of the promise you'd made. They, they found a way that you could get close enough to using God's name that it would convince people that you were serious about your promise. But if the deal didn't go the way they wanted, if the promise was no longer in their favor, they could just quietly slip out of the door and not live up to what they'd said. No no wonder John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers. It's like, it's a serious statement in some ways. They, They have this way of sneaking out of the deals that they'd made and they do that by referencing some of these things that Jesus references here. They'd say that I swear by God's heaven and to an undiscerning person, it sounds kind of like you're swearing by God's name, but, but you're not actually. It allow you to sneak out when it wasn't convenient. I, I swear by God's, by God's city. I swear by God's world, and it, and it included God's name, but it didn't quite seal the deal in a way that other people might think they were sealing the deal. The Pharisees had developed a system for getting around 
vows. And so you see multiple places where Jesus just, he just lights these guys up. It's actually really like, first century context, right? It doesn't always come across to us, but, but, but in the day, it's like he just goes after them. It's kind of vicious. This passage is related to one in Matthew chapter 23, where he says this, woe to you blind guides, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus says, no, you can't get around it in this way. If you include things that God is included, if you vow on things that God is associated with, uh, by extension, you're bringing him into that conversation as well. If Jesus sounds like he's talking to kids on a school playground, it's because he is. Uh, They are living a practice that was probably familiar to you if you remember back to being like eight or nine or 10. How, How many of you said something to a friend and then said, I was crossing my fingers. Like a loophole, like a, I'm, I'm not, not serious, like it's no problem, cross my heart, hope to die, nope, sorry, fingers were crossed, it's, it's not, doesn't count, doesn't count. There's, there's all of these ways that we bring that perhaps into modern society, the brilliant Truman Show, this great movie back in the 90s, uh, which centers around a character, no spoiler alerts, you don't get spoiler alerts for movies that are 25 years old. Don't want any of you coming to me saying, we were gonna watch it tonight. We were like literally <laughs> just on the verge of like opening it up. There's this moment where Truman, and we know from the start that Truman is, is in this like very high tech, like controlled environment. There's this moment where he starts to get a sense that something is off. Uh, and this sense of something that's off apparently leads him to look at his wedding photos with a magnifying glass, which doesn't make sense in the context of the story. But in the midst of that, he, he sees that his, his bride, who he believes loves him, has her fingers crossed during the kiss. <laughs> Now, I don't, th- I don't know who thinks that means it doesn't count. Like, there's nobody out there, but in the movie, kind, kind of works. This is the kind of behavior that Jesus is talking about. He says, you're doing things that make it sound like the vow doesn't count, but it still counts. You can't, you can't just get out of it that way. That's no way to live. And then he finishes off the text with this. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, and, and, and you're not necessarily personified there. Evil could just be, it comes from evil, it comes from evil nature, but it could reference Satan or an accuser or someone like that. All that to say, what, what does this text say to us in the 21st century? It's obviously clear it was really important for the Pharisees who regularly went around making vows to manipulate people that they needed to hear this. But what about us in the 21st century? Because I don't know about you, I've not made many vows or oaths recently, other than to my beloved dog, who I've promised now to love (laughs) forever. Now, Now maybe there's some things we might say. We might say, I swear on the Bible. I swear on the stack of Bibles. 
swear on a stack of Bibles with an American flag flying over the top of them. I swear on a stack of Bibles with an American flag flying over the top of it with the Air Force flying over the top of it, like something that holds us to something bigger than us. But it's actually pretty rare. Some parts of Christianity, some particular denominations have taken this text to mean that that you should never swear any kind of oath, that if you get called into a law court, that you should refuse, that, that you should just, you should refrain from any kind of oath. But in Acts, we read that Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, he swears by an oath, so, so it doesn't seem like it's as crystal clear as that. What does it mean for us? And I would say that the place that we land or need to land the most is where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The rest of it perhaps has some distance to us. We're not likely to swear by Jerusalem. We're not likely to swear by God's throne. But that yes be yes and no be no. I don't know about you, but that hits me hard at times. I would say fundamentally the core of Jesus' text is about how you present yourself to the world around you. And particularly how you and I present ourselves to the world around us in conversation. It's how we live in front of other people and especially the things that we might say to get what we want. Because isn't that what the Pharisees are doing? They're they're using manipulation to say, "I, I want my own way. I want to get what I want to get and I'm going to push the bounds of conversation to make sure I get what I want to get. When my wife and I lived in New York, we used to love the Upper West Side district of New York City. We'd we kind of wander down these beautiful like side streets. We'd find all of these incredible brownstone houses that just like you wonder how people afford to live in them. But they do somehow. Some of them have lived there for a long time, and we were always just amazed by this incredible architecture. We love the movie uh, You've Got Mail. Any fans out there? Yeah. yeah. I love the fall, it makes me wanna be in New York City, makes me wanna buy school supplies. And so we got like a photo outside of of the house that somehow the person whose business is going broke affords to live in. Um, But but this architecture is interesting. We found this one piece, one example of this architecture where something interesting is at play, and it's this one. Can you spot what it is? It's the building in the middle, the one that's redder than the others. It's not a building at all. It's a facade. It actually sounds like it could be something really interesting, something really compelling, but but it's actually a ventilation shaft for the subway system. And to cover it up, they put in a front, a facade. If you've heard the slang term fronting, that's where it comes from. The idea of fronting something is an act of putting up a false facade to impress people. Jesus takes all of this teaching to the Pharisees and he relates it to his teaching around hypocrisy, around pretending to be something you're not. It's an acting term. But I would say an additional helpful term for us in this century might be this idea of fronting, of how you might put something up to make it look like what it isn't. Maybe you've seen those towns in the Old West, those pictures uh, of these, these kind of shacks that have these kind of ornate things put up at the front of them to make them look like a hotel, to make them look like a bar. And it's the same sort of idea. Jesus is talking about fronting. He's talking about being, pretending to be something you're not. 
He's talking about ways you might use language in a way far beyond just yes, this is true, yes, this is who I am, or no, this is who I'm not, or no, I don't want to do that. And he's talking about ways that you might create a different impression, both of who you are and who I am, and what we want out of the situation. And so the question might be, if this is something you struggle with, and I know at times it's something I struggle with, why do we do this? Why are we so convinced that we want to present something different to the world than what we are? Why is it that we're so tempted to try and use conversation to get our way to manipulate what's going on in the interactions with other people? Because that, again, is what the Pharisees did. That's exactly the sort of thing that Jesus goes after them for. And I would suggest there's a couple of different ways. The first is to convince. The second is to compensate. So to convince, particularly to convince others that you are something that you're not, that the deal is something that it isn't. Have any of you tried to buy a car off Facebook Marketplace? (laughs) This is exactly the sort of thing that happens there. I I tried to sell a car, it didn't go well because I was too honest, I tried to tell the guy every single thing that was wrong with it and he kind of starts to look at me as like, really, like is this car, does it even work? Is it even a car? Like are you gonna land me with a donkey and a horse and cart or something like that? It just, I just not, I'm not good at selling, but, but other people are. I went to buy an Audi, 2006 Audi A6. I was excited because I'd looked it up and on Kelly Blue Book it was worth two and a half thousand dollars more than the person was selling it for. And so I picked up the phone and I gave him a quick call and I knew straight away that the guy, that I liked him because he started complimenting me a lot and telling me what a great choice it was. He told, told me how lucky I was because there'd been lots of interest, but if I got there soon, the car could be mine. He even said, bring cash, because you're definitely gonna want it. It's an amazing deal. And I drove over to see it, prayerfully just been thankful for this guy whose generosity would afford me the kind of car that at the time I couldn't actually afford. And so I got there to look at it, and he showed me a couple of details, and, and just mentioned, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great car. You should definitely buy it. There's other people coming to look later. And he even had a mechanic friend who had the store next to him, who helpfully would look the car over for me, just so I could be reassured that all was well, friend. And so off I went with my new car, very excited that I got this incredible deal. Actually thinking, man, that used car sales guy, I took that sucker. Like I had his number, like he's he's a fool. And so I went home and the next day, there were three types of oil or fluid on my garage. Every type of thing that can leak began to leak from this car, and I took it to my own mechanic, who I probably should have checked in with originally, and said to him, what do you think of the car? And he looked at it and said, yeah. If you put about $2,500 into it, it'll be a pretty decent car. And it was the moment I realized I was never going to win that conversation. That guy knew exactly how to push my buttons, exactly how to manipulate me. It's not always bad intention that leads us to do this. Sometimes it's just this sense of, I'm not enough, and I need to lock this deal in. I need to finalize this contract. I need to make this happen. And if I had perhaps just a little bit more, if I had a little bit more and some 
someone else had a bit less, then, then I'd be happier, I'd be more successful, I'd feel better about myself. There's this fascinating conversation that came up when Steve Jobs died. Uh, one of the investors um, in a company called I Like talked about going to Steve Jobs and asking him if he'd be willing to invest in it. He says this, as the world celebrated Steve Jobs' life last week, I record a lesson he taught me. My one meeting with Steve didn't end well. It's one of my most painful memories and a warning to startup CEOs about the danger of taking hype too far. Here's the story, and he goes on to unpack how he had this opportunity to pitch his company to the great Steve Jobs, and Steve said we'd consider buying it for about $50 million, which was the, the most recent valuation. But this wasn't enough and he felt worried that his investors wouldn't be happy with it, said to Steve, I don't think our investors will go for that. And Steve said, oh, don't worry, we'll talk to them, they will. And then he made a comment or threw in a phrase that didn't go down well. This is how the conversation turns out. I replied, Steve, I think we're worth at least three times that. And then my terrible mistake, a moment that I've regretted ever since. Actually, I know were three time, were three times as much. As soon as I blurted out that word, I knew it was a mistake. The distinction between think and know was a lie and Steve pounced on it instantly. He said there's this moment where he tried to convince this great entrepreneur that he had a better deal in his back pocket, that somebody else had already offered more for it and the company was definitely worth $150 million. And of course, he was playing far above his pay grade. And he said in a follow-up phone call, at one point he said on a phone call, Steve told me point blank, you're a liar and I don't trust anything you say. This wasn't necessary. I'd always learned my lesson, already learned my lesson. The hard truth is I can't blame him. Trust can be ruined with a single word and it's not easy to build. Have you ever found yourself in a situation in life where you feel like you need to push the bounds of truth just a little bit? Maybe it seems like for a good cause. Maybe it seems like it's reasonable. Maybe it seems like it's just a little bit of a stretch. I think we do that regularly and often if we're honest. We just push it a little bit more for the extra little bit of money, the extra deal, the extra sale that we weren't sure we could get, the one that will make all of the financial problems disappear. It's the kind of language that Jesus is talking about. But I also think we do it to compensate, to, to cover up for the fact that very rarely, if we're honest, are we comfortable in conversation with who we are and what we bring to the table. Some years ago, a friend of mine was at a party in New York City. I've not asked his permission to sell the, tell this story, so I, I won't reveal his name, because it does not reveal him in a flattering light. But he's told many people, so I think it's probably gonna be okay. He was at a party with a young lady that he was considering dating. They were just going on one of those first dates, and, and during the course of the evening, he spotted another young lady who he decided he liked more than the young lady he was with. No, there's lots of room for groaning in this story and sighing and like, I'm, I hope this guy never visits because you guys, once you know all this, you're not gonna be big fans. She decided she'd like to go home and he said, I'm gonna put you in a taxi then and I'll see you tomorrow and then spent the rest of the evening chasing after this other young lady and found out during the course of the evening that she was a movie star or a Netflix star, whether that's quite the same thing, I don't know. Started to feel like he might be a little bit out of his league. 
And so, so being in New York on vacation, he, he kind of implied, or very actually implied, that he lived in New York City, was really quite successful at something he did, although he wasn't sure what that was, and that he would be around regularly to, to kind of spend time with her, and then went back to Canton, Michigan, the only place he has ever actually lived, just to, to go back to his normal life. They'd build up a relation, started swapping some messages over Instagram, and, and it was fun for us, because we would regularly threaten that we would drop in on these message streams and, and just point out where he actually was and where he actually lived. And then came the awkward part. There was this moment where she said, why don't we get together for our birthdays that are in the same week? kind of casual agreement that you might make with somebody who lives in the same city as you, except he didn't live in the same city as her. And so when it came to their birthday week, he bought his plane tickets and he flew off to New York City to be with the girl of his dreams. And when the night came, he texted her and said, hey, still hanging out tonight, right? You know, that kind of casual text you might send to someone who lives in the same city. And she replied, really sorry, I've gone to Hawaii for my birthday. Would love to catch up next week. when he wasn't in the city. It's exactly the sort of thing that somebody might do who isn't entirely convinced that they are who they want to be. And perhaps you've done something not exactly like that, but something like that too. Perhaps it's an implied relationship that you don't actually have. Some background experience that you don't actually have. Perhaps it's a a famous friend, a piece of wealth, all of those different things that that we might be inclined to just exaggerate and just push a little bit further. Perhaps it's even just something as simple as like someone saying, did you see that movie? And you say, oh yeah, yeah, I saw it, when you didn't. Have you read this book when you didn't? All of those things that might just give people just a little bit of a better impression of us. Somewhere I struggle with just yes, and no, I think, is often tied to our desire to convince somebody else to do something that they might not want to do, and our desire to compensate just a little bit for who we wish we were, to build ourselves up a little bit more. But do you see the thread between the two? There's a distinct thread between those two positions. Both of them are a question of identity. Both of them are a question of identity. They both happen because we don't really know who we are. And and same for the Pharisees too. They they want to convince people that they are this incredible spiritual giant and, and, and deep down they know that no, it's a facade. It's not real. It's the same problem that so much of humanity seems to experience. And again, a good space to ask this question. When that happens, what untransformed part of me are you revealing? God. It's the moment where you say something to get a payout, to receive a bonus, to make the sale that you really need to make, to find a date, to get a better deal. And it's all done to convince someone of something. It's the moment where you need to feel significant, to be accepted, to look good, to have it all together, or even just to get a second date. It's all compensation. And it all roots down into this place of identity. Who am I really? Do I matter and what? What do people think of me? 
Have a look at this brilliant Henry Nouwen quote because this guy gets this struggle and watch how it really links to some of the other things we've talked about over the last few weeks. Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation. We talked about those, right? We talked about lust, we talked about anger, all of those different things. But their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm nobody. My dark side says, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. That's the invitation that Jesus makes to us. Jesus invites us to find our identity only in him, only in him. So when you have those moments, when I have those moments where we're tempted to convince someone to get that deal that we think we need, when we have those moments where we're tempted to compensate for the person that we wish that we were, the answer isn't actually just to spiral into self-rejection to say actually none of those things matter. The answer is to root back to that original identity that says your identity is only found in Jesus. That, that's what Paul learned. As he writes to this church in Galatia, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see identity all through that? Crucified is a death. It's no longer I that live. It's a surrender of who I am. And then he holds just this one thing. And I love that Paul rarely uses the me language, but he does here. It's quite often us, or it's quite often you, but in that moment, it's, it's me. As he, as he taps into this idea that I, I recognize that for me specifically, Jesus died. For me specifically, he uses the term beloved. And nothing else matters. A question, why does this matter? Jesus has talked about things like murder. He's talked about what happens when you leave someone not breathing on the floor. He's talked about adultery, which is, is serious today, but in the first century context is, is crazy serious. Like whole wars over continents started over one adulterous relationship. Like it's a different level. Why, why this? Why does he think this is so important for his followers in his model community to grasp and, and live out? And I would suggest it's because of just how powerful your word is, your yes and your no is, and how powerful an example it is of the God who always keeps his word. A few years ago, when I was working in the Detroit area, I got to work with this incredible organization, Central Detroit Christian. They'd been working in this deprived community for about 16 to 17 years, and as we were there in this one weekend, we were going around and we were doing some work for some different people that needed it. But a much bigger church had arrived at the same time. 
And they went around not only doing all of the work, but also going and saying to people, what can we do for you? Is there anything that we can do to help? Not necessarily a bad question. But during the course of that, someone came out of a building and said, I would love a new roof on my building. That would really help. And this affluent church said, oh, we'll get it done for you. Don't worry, we'll write a check. We'll get the roof out here. It'll be fixed. When they got back to headquarters, back to Lisa who runs the organization, she blew up. She was furious. She looked at this church, this leader of this church and said, that guy's a loan shark. We've been trying to get him out of his building for about 10 years. He's a cancer in this community. But do you know what? We'll fix his roof. Do you know why? Because there's one thing people know about us in this community. We always keep our word. We always keep our word because that's how you build trust. And that's how you reflect the God of the universe who always keeps his word. This teaching is so central to all that Jesus says because, because of this. You convey more than you say. It's not just words, it's the lifestyle that backs up those words. It's one thing to call ourselves followers of Jesus, but it's another thing to really live by Jesus' principles. And so another question, if that's a struggle, and I already said it is at times for me, what can we do? What, what, what does a life of truth look like? And we heard that word truth in that liturgy and we'll pray it in just a moment and we'll embrace it as we begin to come to this table. What, what can I do to enter into that pathway? What can I do to find my identity firmly in Jesus and begin to live out his truth more concretely? And there's two practices. And if you're into spiritual practices at all, I'd say they often come in twos. Because quite often one of the practices is designed to help you not do something, and one of the practices is designed to begin to intentionally do something. And so the first one that you might like to go home and try is this. It's centering prayer. We can try it really quickly right now. I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes. And you're just gonna take a moment to recognize that this God of the universe spoke into this universe and began everything. And the best place to hear his voice, to capture hold of what he has done is in silence. And in centering prayer, the invitation is just to pick a word. It's not like a mantra, it's not like, it's not, it doesn't, the word doesn't do anything, it's not like a, a chant, but it's a word that signals your intention to allow God to speak to you, to allow him to work in you, to allow him to bring to the surface all of the things that you hold, things from childhood, things from marriage, things from friends, all these things that you might have picked up that weigh on you, that cause you to look for identity in anything other than Jesus. And so in a space of quiet, the invitation is just to, to say that word. My word is always beloved. Henry Nouwen mentions it there. Just remind myself that I'm beloved, deeply loved by this God. Not because I've done anything, not because I am anything, not because I pastor a church, not because I try and be a good father, not because I try and be a good husband. Just beloved, 
And that word would be true if the church said to me, we don't want you here anymore. That word would be true if I was a terrible father. My tr that word would be true if I ended up going through a divorce. And I sit in silence and I say, beloved. And it's just my signal to God that God, I'm here. And I deeply need you. Deeply need you to pull out that sense of identity take away all the things that give me my identity that I can't let go of and to embrace you the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and you can take that home with you and practice it I love to do it in the morning just in this space and just invite God God what is it pull up the yuck pull up the stuff in me that I don't like pull out the things that I hold on to just remind me that my identity is in you. And then this is the second one, is to practice honesty. To notice those moments where you're tempted to say something more than yes, something more than no. Those moments where you're tempted to convince someone to compensate for something. Those moments where you go a little bit beyond and stretch the truth. Now I'm not talking here about is it okay to lie to the Nazis about Jews hidden in your attic. None of you have that problem right now. It's just to simply remind yourself that there's times where we're tempted to say something that isn't true, and there's usually a reason. And just to choose in that moment to say, God, I'm gonna choose honesty. I'm gonna choose to let my yes be yes, and my no be no, because that's who my Father is. And so we get to do that here at this table. So I'm gonna invite you to stand. And perhaps this is a place where you need to be honest. As you come to this table, you get to bring some of the conviction that God stirs up, some of the ways that you might say, oh, I'm definitely that person. You might like someone to pray with you. Our prayer team will be at the side of the room. It doesn't mean that everyone has to know that you've told an untruth. It could be for any sort of reason, but the space, if you'd like someone to pray for you during this time. But you may like to just bring yourself to this table where Jesus spoke to his followers about his true identity. He said, this is who I am and this is what I am for the world. Remember me when you do this together. And so we get to come to this table and we get to go out into the world and say, God, help me to reflect who you are to this world that needs you and longs for you. Help me to bring my honest self, my true self. To let my yes be yes and my no be no. Let me root my identity only in you, Jesus, in this table. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. Taking bread, he handed it to them. Said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. And handing it to each of them, he said, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. As we come, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And we commit again to the life he has asked us to live. We say, Jesus, I am yours. I'm living in your way with your heart. Help me to be the person you call me to be. As we prepare to come, 
Let's pray this together. Lord, I pray that you would unlock my heart, that I might be fully alive to my true identity in you. Give me clear revelation to see myself the way you see me. Help me to stand in your truth against all enemy attacks and guard my heart with all vigilance. Teach me to speak truth as you speak truth and so to reflect your character to a watching world. Jesus, as we come in places that you've brought conviction, would you now bring grace? In places where shame has arisen, would you remind us that shame does not belong here? As we come and we take this bread and this cup, would your real presence transform us in ways that we need to be transformed? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.